0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look to God's Word together. And so I have seven points, just so you know, ahead of time, since I didn't put the outline there, to answer the question, what is a biblical church or a healthy church? I mean, we always hear, no church is perfect. Yeah, we know that. No church is perfect. That's a given. But there is a difference between healthy churches and unhealthy churches, obedient churches and disobedient churches, biblical churches and compromised churches. That's a huge difference. And there's a reason for that. Very specific reasons. It comes down to Scripture, what God has revealed to his people about what constitutes not a perfect church, but a healthy church, a biblical church, a thriving church. A community of saints where God can fulfill his purpose for the ages through the church. And so just got seven principles. These are not exhaustive. There are more than seven biblical principles of what constitutes a healthy church, but uh just trying to distill it down. And so here's uh seven thoughts to hang our thoughts on about what constitutes a healthy church. And then always it's always good to be reviewing, you know, where we as a church, where am I individually in terms of how I fit into the church? What is God doing through Grace Bible Fellowship? How is he growing us? Where are we weak? How is he maturing us? How is he trying us? How is he fine-tuning us? Where is he leading us? Where have we been? I mean, all these questions. So we've got to keep going back to Scripture and look through the grid of God's model of what constitutes a biblical church, a healthy church. And so these seven principles are going to help us do that together. So let's go ahead and look at these. And this is just a raging debate. You can go and find in the Christian bookstore all kinds of books about, well, you've got to do church this way. No, you got to do it this way. And so there are competing philosophies of how you're supposed to do church today. And that's been going on not just for the last 20 years or the last 200 years. That's been a debate all throughout church history. What is the proper way to do church? And I think the answer is always you just go back to Scripture because it is clearly delineated and explained for us. But it also it is modeled for us perfectly in the book of Acts in the entire New Testament. How are we supposed to do church? Well, according to the Bible, and so these are seven biblical principles. So what are some of the marks of a healthy church? One through seven, we'll start with number one, and that is a healthy church is biblically driven. Biblically driven. And we've all heard of the purpose-driven church, which, I mean, I would agree with you, have got to have a purpose, right? But it doesn't really go far enough because churches that are bad, even false religions, have a purpose. Uh, secular businesses have a purpose. So it's got to go beyond purpose-driven. I agree, you've got to be purpose-driven, but that purpose has to be rooted in and come from Scripture. So it's got to be biblically driven. That is the first actually foundational key mark of what a healthy church looks like, biblically driven. Just a couple of passages I want to look at. Acts chapter 2, you can keep your finger there. And then the other one I want to look at is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Precept and uh, by... Modeling, that's what these two passages refer to. The model of the early church that Jesus Christ established and he raised his apostles and they started the first church, they laid the foundation and they functioned in the first church. They were the leaders of the first church. So this is the model we are supposed to follow. The biblical model, which is biblically driven. In other words, Scripture or the Bible drives and defines everything we do as a church. Should we be doing this as a church, that as a church, uh, this ministry, that ministry, this philosophy, this event? Well, it always comes down to, well, is it driven by Scripture? Is there a mandate from the Bible that warrants us doing that in our local church and doing it in a certain manner? That's what I mean by biblically driven. When it comes to all ministries in the church, should we have uh, a ministry totally given over to recycling? And make that one of the priorities in our church? Well, I don't see that in the Bible. Do I recycle? Yes. Do I think it's a biblical ministry? No. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of relevance today. So here's the early church modeling a biblically driven church. Here are the apostles. This is after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. He sent down the Holy Spirit to start the first church. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, people are convicted, they hear the gospel, many repent, they are saved, they are baptized, they are added to the local church in Jerusalem. And so in the first church of Jerusalem, where the apostle Peter and the other apostles, they are the elders of that church. And they have a model that they follow in terms of how to do church, and they exemplify what are the marks of a healthy church. And one of the first things is that they were a biblically driven church. So look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They, that's all these believers of this first early church, they were continually, this was a regular practice. This is how they conducted themselves routinely in terms of functioning in a church and how they ran the ministry. They were continually devoting themselves. It was an absolute priority. They weren't going to deviate. They weren't going to be distracted. They were devoted to this because they knew it was a biblical mandate. The saints in the early church were continually devoting themselves to what? To just a few things, that's all. Just a few things. Praising God and worship was one of them. Prayer was another one. Breaking the bread was one one of them as well. And then the first one listed here is they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? They were devoted and committed to biblical teaching. Regularly, all the time, everywhere they went, everything they did. Scripture defined everything about their church. That's what I mean by a biblically driven church. Are we devoted to the apostles' doctrine? That's a summary statement for the entire New Testament. Matthew to Revelation, all 27 books, is how we need to run, conduct, define our church. Then the other passage you can flip over there regarding Scripture. The Bible. Not only does it include the 27 books of the New Testament, this statement in 2 Timothy also includes the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Revelation. This is our mandate. Scripture is our authority. And we do everything by way of ministry in light of Scripture. Pastor, can you do this ministry? Can you do that ministry? Then I always, my first thought is, well, is it in the Bible? Do we have a biblical mandate? Do we have a a biblical example in the New Testament? According to the Apostles' doctrine, that we should be doing this in terms of our, we, we are limited in our stewardship. Uh, abilities, time, energy, money. So in 2 Timothy, 3:16 uh, there. And while I'm flipping there, I was reminded I was in a service event I was helping with in the Christian community, and there were several people collaborating together. And this was in San Jose. Some neat Christians I was working with, and, and we were just doing different stuff and share, going around sharing what church are you from, what church are you from, what, and what do you do, what do you do? Oh, you're a pastor! Oh, what church are you a pastor at? And I said, Oh, Grace Bible Fellowship. And this is early on, and, and not very, I nobody heard of that church before because we were new. And then the next question was, Well, what model do you follow? I said, uh, uh, What do you mean, what model do I follow? Yeah, what model of church do you follow? How do you, like, how do you do church? What model do you follow? And I, I said, well, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what you're talking about. What do, you, what do you mean, what model do I follow? Well, there's three. I said, oh, okay, <laughs> what are they? Yeah, there's three models that you should follow as a church. There's the Willow Creek model in Chicago, Bill Hybels. And then there's the Purpose Driven model in Southern California with Rick Warren. And then there's the uh, Mark Driscoll model. So which, which one of those three are you doing? I was like, wow, uh, wow, we don't do any of those. What? Yeah, well, what model? Well, I guess we use the model of the Bible. Uh, yeah, we use the Book of Acts model. That's what I told him. Oh, how does that work? And anyway, <laughs> that is a true story. I am not kidding. But it's a good reminder. So 2 Timothy 3.16, just Paul talking about the importance of Scripture. It saves the individuals and it also is uh, profitable and really the priority in every church, the value of Scripture, not just in individual lives but corporately with the saints in the church. Verse 16, here's its authority. All Scripture is inspired by God, literally breathed out by God. <laughs> The, the mind, the thoughts of God are put down in writing. That's what that means. God is the author of scripture. God wrote the Bible, you could say. He did it through human agents. All scripture, and all of it. Genesis to Revelation. Which book is more important? Romans or Leviticus? They all are. Equally. All scripture, breathed out by God. All are profitable. For the following four things. For teaching. That's what you do in church. For reproof when there's sin. For correction when there's ignorance. For training in righteousness to help people serve in ministry and live life day to day. For the purpose that, verse 17, that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, whoever you are and you know Christ, so that the man of God or the Christian may be adequate. It is sufficient, is what that means. Scripture is sufficient to enable you, allow you to do anything God requires or expects of you in this life relative to the church and living as a Christian day to day. So that the man of God or the Christian may be adequate, equipped, or thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient for the Christian. Hence that phrase, sola scriptura. And so we are biblically driven if we want to be a healthy church, and Scripture defines everything we do in all of our ministries. It defines how we do baptism and view baptism, how we define and do the Lord's table or communion. It defines our preaching and how we approach preaching, and even what we preach. The Bible even defines all of our roles our roles as men and women in the church and in life. It defines our music, the quality, or how we even approach music and its appropriateness. In the church, it defines how we do membership or why we even have membership. And I could just go on and on. Uh, so we need to be a biblically driven church. Let's go on to point number two. If you want to be a healthy church, then you've got to be biblically driven. And you also have to have a plurality of biblical elders. A plurality of biblical elders. Notice I did not say a plurality of perfect elders. That ain't going to happen. A plurality of biblical elders. Uh, if you want to keep your finger or just go to Titus... Since we're in Timothy, you can just flip a couple pages, books back. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Here's the Apostle Paul writing to Titus. Titus is a protege trained by Paul, followed Paul, modeled after Paul, was used by Paul in the local churches. And here he's being used by the Apostle Paul in a region in Crete as he traveled with Paul. And he's given him a mandate. And he says, Titus, you know, as we're traveling around, I want to... As we're going around and we're planting churches, I want to leave you here in this area to do some work for me, to build up local church leadership in these places where I've left you. And uh, and then he gives these qualifications for elders. Very specific. If you want to be an elder in a church, there are specific qualifications that you've got to meet. And before that, he says in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, To Titus, I left you in Crete for this reason that you would set in order what remains in these churches, help build up the churches. And priority number one is establish biblical leadership in these churches by appointing elders, get this, in every city. Appointing elders in every city. That means wherever there's a church in any city, it doesn't matter, every church is supposed to have a plurality of godly elders qualified in light of Titus chapter 1. Elders in every city. To complement that, I'm just going to read Acts chapter 14, verse 23, where Paul said the same thing. He was going around planting churches. He planted many churches. And he said, as was his custom, in every city, he appointed elders in every church. There it is. The biblical model was planting elders in every church in every city. In other words, you are not a biblical church or a healthy church or an obedient church or a mature church until you have a plurality of biblical qualified elders in your church. There's a lot of church planting going on in the last 10 years. People are writing books like it like never before. Church planting is good. I believe in church planting. Did you know that every church started as a church plant? Well, think about that. Wow. But it's true. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to do it in a biblical manner, you don't have a true New Testament church until you have a plurality of godly elders in place. So if you've got a group of believers together and you're meeting and you're worshiping and you're studying scriptures and praying, which is great. If you don't have a plurality of godly elders. You don't have a church, but you've got like a Bible study or a fellowship group. And then, as you lay it before God, He could very well grow that into a New Testament church, which God does all the time. That's kind of uh, how He even started GBF. So you need a plurality, plurality, plurality of biblical elders, or what I mean by that is just uh, qualified elders in light of Titus chapter one and First Timothy chapter three. Uh, somebody was telling me this week they were talking to one, a local pastor and they had a discussion and they were actually kind of talking about church leadership and that this pastor was telling my friend that well you don't you don't really need elders in a church that's that's one of those debatable issues in the Bible it's not really clear it's like mm, no that's it's actually really clear and you need a plurality of elders to have a healthy church but, and just the plurality. Is so important. You know, a plurality? What does that provide? I mean, I've seen it in our church in six years. It provides checks and balances, it has positive and negative benefits if you have a plurality. If you have a plurality of men who are equals before God as shepherds, it provides accountability so that there's no one man show. I mean that's pretty much of American model. One guy running the show, calling all the shots, very unhealthy. Uh, A plurality provides that accountability. We all have weaknesses. We all have blind spots. That's kind of the negative benefits. There are positive benefits too because there's nothing like giving you confidence when you're with other men of God, a plurality of them, and you lay something before God and you're lacking wisdom and then you lay it before God through prayer and then God reveals to every single one of you and you're in absolute unity and in total sync about the answer and the direction God wants you to go. That is unbelievable. That's a miracle. And then you can move forward with God's confidence This is what the Spirit of God wants us to do. And that also is a byproduct of a plurality of godly men. So it's a beautiful thing. God knows what He's doing. So if you want to be a healthy church, you've got to be biblically driven and have a plurality of biblical elders. Number three, to be a healthy church, you need personal and public prayer. Ongoing, personal, I should say ongoing, passionate, personal, and public prayer. What I mean by public is corporate prayer. A church is made up of individuals. Those individuals are like cells to the body. If you want to have a healthy church, you need healthy Christian individuals in your church. Part of being a healthy individual Christian is having a healthy, ongoing, passionate, deliberate, consistent prayer life. That is just clear in Scripture. And and that's where it needs to start. We need believers who are committed to prayer on a regular basis, praying biblically, And then also we need corporate opportunities, public opportunities for the saints to gather together to pray together and to pray for one another, whether it's in Sunday school class uh, or we're taking prayer requests. uh, We provide a a once-a-month prayer meeting here at GBF where saints can come together and pray, and that needs to happen. That's the biblical model. Going back to Acts chapter 2, where the apostles gave us that visual model of what a biblical church is. What did they do, this early church? What were they devoted to continually Acts two forty-two. They were continually devoting themselves to the, the apostles' doctrine or teaching, biblical teaching, and to fellowship, sharing their lives together at a very intimate and spiritual level, and also to the pre- baking of breaking of bread and to prayer. They were known by their prayer lives, together, privately, and corporately. So GBF needs to be. In order to be a healthy church, we've got to have individuals, and as a church corporately, we need to have ongoing, personal, passionate, public prayer. Number four, to be a healthy church, we need to have biblical church discipline. Church discipline. We think of discipline as a negative word, but actually it's, it comes from a positive root word. Disciple. Disciple to teach, to instruct. And yes, discipling or discipline can be positive or negative. You can discipline somebody with positive discipline. And then there's the negative side as well. But church discipline uh, needs to be ongoing in the church. And Jesus laid it out. There's no question about how to do church discipline. So if you looked at Matthew uh, 18, many of you are familiar with this. This is actually missing in action in a lot of churches. And it has been throughout church history. For whatever reason. Many churches really don't know about it. They're not familiar with it. They haven't been taught on it. Some actually fear it. I've actually worked at a church like that. Wow, this is scary, kind of controversial. This hurts people's feelings. We are not going to do this. It's like, well, we don't have an option. That's what Jesus said to do. Jesus only talked about the church two times in his three and a half year public ministry. Two times. That was it. One, when he said he was going to build the church. The second time, when he talked about church discipline, that's the maintenance of a healthy church. I'm going to build this church, and then it needs to to be maintained in a healthy manner. That is through the process of church discipline, and that's Matthew 18, 15 and following. He lays out four steps of church discipline, and that's dealing with sin in your church at a practical level to maintain purity in the church. And bring restoration to sinners back into the church. That's the whole point. That's why, here it was. Here's the church discipline process. Jesus said, if your brother sins. If a fellow Christian, professing Christian, sins individually against you, and you know about it, then you go and show him his fault. You go talk to that fellow believer. You don't talk to somebody else behind their back and gossip and slander. You go talk to the offender. The fellow brother or sister in Christ. And you show him his fault. Literally, you give them the evidence. That's scriptural evidence biblical evidence in light of their sinful behavior. And you do this in private to protect their reputation and your reputation. Because God is a gracious God. And He knows we are all sinners. And all of our reputations need to be protected, don't it? That's just true. So this is step one. If your brother or sister listens to you, then you have won your brother. If they respond to your confrontation in repentance, you've won them. And then you extend total forgiveness. And then God... Can restore and even strengthen that relationship, and then you move on. And then he goes on to step two, step three, step four. And it's escalated every step of the way. This is a regular, ongoing maintenance that needs to be done in the church, and I've said it several times that I am doing Matthew chapter, or church discipline step one all the time, every single week, actually almost every single day in my life. I'm doing church discipline. Number one, and sometimes it's people disciplining me in step one, confronting me of a weakness, a compromise, a sin. might even be in my home. And then I need to respond to that and admit my sin. Very important. But you would be surprised at how many churches, they just don't even know about church discipline. They want nothing to do with it. And then as a result, you've got all kinds of chaos in the church, and it is ugly. This is Jesus' way to maintain harmony among sinners. You cannot improve on his plan. That's why it needs to be a priority. So, if we want a healthy church, we have got to have ongoing church discipline. Number five, if we want a healthy church, then we have to have saints serving. Saints serving. What's a saint? That's someone who has been canonized after they've been dead for 50 years and no, and done two miracles. No. Saints consistently in the New Testament are they're holy ones, and it, and that's a Christian. If you're a born-again Christian, you're a saint. You are a holy one before God by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Despite your sins, despite my sins and my fallenness and my weaknesses, Jesus Christ, or actually God the Father, looks down from heaven if you have been saved through Jesus Christ. And God the Father, legally as a judge, sees you as pristine, as white, as clean, as forgiven snow as Jesus is. He sees you as holy, and that's why Christians are called holy ones. And that's literally what saint means. Saint means holy. Holy One, before God, legally speaking, because Jesus died in your place and He rose again and you believe that and ask for His forgiveness, you're adopted into His family, you are legally declared righteous, totally clean, totally forgiven, secure in Him from a legal, positional point of view. Isn't that amazing? I don't care what your mother-in-law says about you, you are a saint if you are a Christian. Or what anybody might say, or even what you might think about yourself sometimes, right? If you're struggling with guilt or depression because you know the sin and compromise in your life, well, you've got to fess up, get clean, get clean with God, practically speaking, but that doesn't change your status positionally and legally before God as a forgiven, holy saint because of the work of Jesus Christ. So I proudly, confidently assume the title of Saint Clifford. And if you're a believer, you can do the same. So that's what a saint is. So when I say saints serving in the church, this is Ephesians chapter 4. And i just look at one verse there because I don't have time to go through the whole chapter. But in Ephesians 4, in that section like no other, the Apostle Paul, through the Spirit of God, lays out... Line by line, what God is trying to and will accomplish through the local church and all the local churches together through the universal church, what is God trying to do? He is building the church through the ages towards a goal that will culminate and climax in world history for all eternity where Jesus Christ is building and preparing His bride, the church, for the wedding day when Jesus Christ, risen Lord of lords, will marry the church, the bride of Christ. And God is literally preparing the church as a bride for that wedding day in the future. And so He's building the church, edifying the church, raising up the church, ironing out wrinkles in the church. But He's doing it through human beings. He's doing it through Christians in the local church. And He's doing it through our faithful service and also through supernatural capabilities He's given us called spiritual gifts. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. That's clear in Scripture. It's mentioned right here in Ephesians 4:10. After Jesus died, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, he began the church. That's what verse 10 is talking about. And then Jesus Christ who descended is himself the one who ascended far above all heavens so that he might f- fill all things and complete his plan. And his plan is verse 11. He gave some as apostles to start the church, he gave some as prophets to also start the church, to write the New Testament. And then he raised up evangelists. These were leaders to plant churches. Those churches were perpetuated and overseen and taken care of by pastors who are also known as elders and also teachers who teach in the church. So you've got these leaders in the church who have the job of edifying, teaching, equipping, maturing everybody else that is there. Verse 12, leaders serving the church for the purpose of equipping all the saints. That's all of you. To do what? For a purpose of doing the work of the ministry. Who's doing the work in GBF who's doing the ministry it should be every person that knows Jesus Christ is a part of doing the work at GBF out of a heart of service a mandate from God and also supernaturally empowered to do it through your spiritual gift and the indwelling Holy Spirit and God amazingly is using us to grow his church every Christian needs to be able to answer the question what is my ministry in my home church can you answer that question what is your ministry in your local church Every Christian should be able to say that. Oh, I know what it is. I'm a steward, too. I'm a steward of my gift, 1 Peter 4.10. So if you're a born-again Christian, and you don't have an, a regular ongoing ministry in the local church, there's a problem. If you're idle. And I don't know what the problem is. There's common ones. You, you're ignorant of what Scripture says. You're disobedient. You're, well, I don't know what it is. But you gotta get right with God and do that. And I just thank God for GBF. And so many obedient saints, it's just amazing in terms of people serving and where they're serving, and that's how the church grows. We want to be a healthy church, we need saints who are serving. Number six, if we want to be a healthy church, we need to be committed to personal evangelism. Personal evangelism. What evangelism program do you guys use? I've heard that before, and that's common. That's been a discussion for years, and churches battle over that, and they have philosophies about that. What's the best way to do evangelism? And some models say, well, what you got to do is you got to you got to be seeker sensitive or seeker driven on Sundays, and then invite unbelievers to come, and then you know, don't let them be offended by anything. You should probably pull the shades over those glass stained windows because those are religious, and you might want to get rid of your cross. And if you have to jettison the Bible so they don't see it and get offended, you might want to do that. And your songs, you know. Tone those down a little bit. I'm serious. This is a philosophy. But the idea is the best way to evangelize unbelievers is to tone it down. Don't have anything offensive when you corporately come together, and then you give the gospel so that they might be saved. That is a very specific philosophy of reaching unbelievers. Where I would say, well, the book of Acts clearly lays out, as does Jesus' life, what the model is for reaching the lost. Yeah, you see, even in the Old Testament. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the model is believers come together for worship, adoration, and praise of God. And they scatter for evangelism. That's the model. Gather for worship and praise, scatter for evangelism. We're supposed to how do you evangelize? You don't need a program. You're supposed to infiltrate the world. Talk to your next door neighbor, your coworker, wherever you go, pray for them. Uh, Starbucks, wherever it is, every opportunity you have to evangelize those who don't know Christ, pray for their salvation, be a godly model wherever you go, that is God's model for the church to evangelize the world. And every single born-again Christian needs to be committed to the cause because Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, you are my witnesses, you're my witnesses wherever you go. You speak on behalf of me, you testify on behalf of me. And we need courage, we need boldness, and we also need clarity on the gospel when we share and evangelize with unbelievers. Sometimes one of the easiest, best things to do is just tell your testimony like the man who was blind. said, I don't know how it happened, but all I know is this man named Jesus set me free. Start there and give him the good news. So our church, it needs we don't start with a program. There's programs out there called Alpha and other things, and those are designed for training. Training is good. But it doesn't begin with the program. It begins with personal witness on the individual Christian's part wherever they go. And you can have programs for training and those kind of things, but that's, that's not the answer. So a healthy church is involved regularly with personal evangelism from the saints. And then finally, number seven. What do we need to have a healthy church in light of the first six? I would say Christ-centered corporate worship. What do we do when we gather on the Lord's Day? What do we do as a group when we gather on Sunday? That, that is a debated issue today in the church across America. I think there's a book called Four Views. Of whatever the title is. Four Views of what you should be doing on Sunday as a church. Well, there shouldn't be four views because there's only one view in the Bible. What did the saints do when they gathered together? We saw it in Acts chapter 2. They were continually committed together as believers, as saints, with one heart before God and Jesus Christ, committed to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And go back to Acts chapter 2 to see one we didn't read yet or emphasize, but this is part of that model of what a local church should be doing when they gather together corporately. It's also given in 1 Corinthians 14 when it says believers come together. If there are unbelievers there, they're on the outside. They're on the periphery. They can watch, but they don't dictate what we do. They don't drive what we do. They are spectators. They can't even understand what we're doing. We have this intimate personal relationship with the God of the universe. They don't get that. They can't see it. They, don't, they aren't experiencing it. But they can watch and learn and hopefully hear the gospel as Scripture is taught. But here's what the saints in the church should be doing on the Lord's Day. By the way, the consistent testimony in the New Testament, the Lord's Day is on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And going back to chapter 2 of Acts, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe before God in light of what was going on through the apostles. What else were they doing? As they continued with one mind in verse 46, verse 47 says they were praising God. So what does the church do together? When it gathers, it praises God. God. And actually, I need to take that back. We as a church do need to be seeker sensitive. We need to be seeker sensitive. And Jesus said it in John chapter 4, verse 23. He said that God the Father is seeking out those who might worship Him. Isn't that neat? So who is the seeker? God the Father. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. Who is the seeker? Jesus. And there's even a way that the Holy Spirit is seeking us as well, that he might save us. So, seeker-sensitive, yes. We need to be sensitive to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and what they require and want from us, their people. And that, first and foremost, it is worship, adoration, and praise to what God has done on our behalf through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. And with that, uh, God can help us to maintain the right attitude and the right trajectory of living in a healthy church before God and for his glory. And with that, let me go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for being here in our midst. We know you're in the midst of your people. You live in our hearts. You've told us that through the Holy Spirit, through faith. Psalms make it clear that you're in the midst of the assembly and in the praises of your people. You're immediately and always accessible to your dear people. So God, we thank you that you're here. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here in Holy Spirit. We thank you for your presence. We pray that our time of worship is edifying to you. We want to give you the glory for all of it. But in return, we also thank you for how you minister to us as we gather as saints, through worship, through fellowship, through the truth of hearing your word and how you use the word of God to feed our soul and to help us grow. God, continue your hand of blessing on GBF, that you guide us day by day, that we would follow you and your Holy Spirit So we seek to be a healthy church, not a proud church, not an arrogant church, not a judgmental church. We're not the only one on the block. We are just one in manifestation of the universal historic church of God that the Lord Jesus Christ is building. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the head of the church. We give you glory for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.